Ken Harvey, thank you so much for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you for agreeing to join AMLRS's advisory board, which we're very excited to have you. And we obviously have a our first meeting of 2022 coming up. Uh, Want to do a couple things with you uh, since you're kind enough to spend some time. One is uh, with the strong technology background, and that's an understatement, of course, that you have. Uh, one of the things that we uh, we think we're doing at Bright Source with the uh, acquisition of Quantiverse, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and some of the other companies that we have is besides sort of the typical legal and compliance response being more of a tech-enabled company. So tech is just so important to the AML field. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions on that, but I'd like to first start with your career path. How did you find your way into uh, AML and uh, walk us through a little bit of your background? I have, an, I have an incredibly boring career path. Uh, I was <laughs> I started as a as a programmer and spent my entire career with the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Uh, so I basically started as a programmer, and uh, when I retired, you know, thirty some years later, I was a global head of all of technology and operations for the bank. So uh, very very strong. You know, never had a reason to look elsewhere. Uh, always very exciting. But I am a dyed-in-the-wool technologist, you know, started out as a programmer, data center operations. Um, I'm actually uh, on the tech I mean, of that TSO. Uh, that's my thing. Is it. And uh, I, I worked there until I retired. And when I retired, I, I actually went out and um, actively sought engagement with high-tech firms where I had a passion for their product. Um, and Quantiverse was one of those. So uh, I was an investor in Quantiverse and, and uh, hopefully uh, an advisor to David uh, as he started that company up. Um, and I just I looked around and, and I really felt strongly about um, contributing something to the financial community. And I think going after bad guys is something we can all get around. And David, by far, had the underlying best algorithms that I that I looked at. I looked at three or four companies and then decided to both invest in and advise uh, Quantiverse. So you guys, in, uh, in my opinion, fantastic acquisition. You made the same pick I picked. Let me ask you, um, you've been doing tech for a long time, and I've been in the AML space also for a long time. The early days of technology, at least in terms of the U.S., is we were filing uh, currency transaction reports in the mail. <laughs> there were suspicious activity reports. Yep, sorry. Uh, SARS came from what they called criminal referral forms. And I can still remember when I was at the Bankers Association, one of the things that we were so happy about is when they created SARS, they said that you will only have to file one report. You no longer have to mail seven copies of possible criminal activity. So given that starting point to, to where we are today, uh, I know we don't have you know three hours to walk through it, but how important has tech, besides the obvious, how important has technology been to better understand your customer, better understand, you know, suspicious, unusual activity and all the things that obviously you've been working on uh, in your career? I'm going to use, I'm going to use your analogy just because it's it's convenient. Um, you know, so I, I go way back to that time as well. And I remember the first automation I did in large currency transaction reporting was to automate a form that every teller in the bank had to bring up. And, and it used to be paper, but then we got it to the point where it was automated. And when a transaction kicked over a certain amount, which in those days was a lower amount, 
Mm-hmm. Um, they would file that. And, that, and then that would be aggregated within the bank because the law was it had to be aggregated against all your branches. So it went to a middle office that then aggregated all those. And then when they did indeed pop up to hit the threshold in aggregate, it would go to a compliance area, which it would then create the filing. And I think that's incredibly analogous with what's happening today in all forms of payments. The volume of transactions that need to be monitored is is on an unbelievable escalation, far greater than inflation and far greater than 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 the rate of financial transactions. So just to draw an analogy, I'm sure there are some of us who may be hearing this who who in the old days took their paycheck, went to the bank, uh, took $100 out, lived on that for two weeks and then went to the bank two weeks later with their paycheck again. And now I doubt there's anyone on this call who doesn't do any of that. The paycheck is direct deposited and they go to the ATM, you know, once, twice a day. They use their debit cards constantly. So the, the, the raw volume of financial transactions per dollar in GDP has escalated at at least treble the rate of inflation for at least 15 years. So the bottom line is that the trouble, the reason you need technology is you can't keep up with this volume. It's the same reason the old large currency transaction reporting wouldn't have kept working. At some point, you needed to capture all the transactions because they were coming in through different vehicles, you know, ATMs, debit cards, um, preloaded cards, you know, branches. Uh, you, you had that. You had to aggregate that very quickly. And then, of course, the guidelines for how frequently you needed to report and, and what your timeliness was also tightened over time. So you ended up having a system do all that. You got rid of all the forms, all the filings, all the middle office, and and you know something just bubbled up directly in almost real time to the compliance department at least same day. And I think that's kind of the journey we're on with with financial uh, transaction monitoring. It, it, there's just too darn many for people to stay up with. Banks and your firm are going to have a tough time keeping up with false positives. There's a lot more bad guys in the world, right? So you're creating a much longer mm-hmm. list of false positives and there's a lot more transactions. And if you put those two compound factors together, you can't you can't deal with 80 or 90% false positives. It just, it becomes overwhelming. Then you miss a few and, and I don't need to tell anybody what the penalties are when you miss a few. The penalties can be quite stiff uh, for missing a, a, you know, what I would consider to be a small number of transactions in the scope of things. So Penalties are high, volume is extraordinary, and you just can't deal with the noise. You need to, you need to be able to focus on the things that truly pop out in pattern management. And I don't think you can do that in a formatted way. You know, if this happens three times in five days, do this. That's not good enough because bad guys figure out your pattern and they go a different way. You know, um, w- one of the challenges that our clients face that you're well aware of is regulatory expectations, and you've alluded to that, obviously, in terms of um, false positives, you know, resource allocation, that sort of thing. I, I've seen recent statements from the agencies in the U.S., and some of this international as well, and FATF does talk about the importance of innovation. But it seems to me, and maybe it's unfair, that the regulators are sort of a couple of steps behind um, in terms of I don't say appreciating technology, but understanding, as you just said, with the volume of information that has to be processed, you have to more rely on that than sort of human intelligence and human intervention. What's been your experience, not so much, you know, at the bank dealing formally with regulators, but in terms of regulators appreciating that? Is it that they do appreciate it and they're trying to learn? and Or is it, do we still, we, meaning the community, still have to make the case Hey, look, for, for all this to work, there needs to be innovation and efficiencies. And you sort of need to give, I don't say a pass, but give institutions the opportunity to get there 
and not worry so much about what happens on Friday, but what's happening three months from now if you see the systems being improved. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but just in general, when you interact with regulators, what's your sense of what we all need to do to have everybody on the proverbial same page? So I I had the, I don't know what to call it, the great life experience of having um, lived through the financial crisis and been in charge of all of IT and operations for HSBC throughout the financial crisis. Um, and I have a great deal of respect for our colleagues in the regulatory community. So I, I don't ever take anything I say as anything but. I mean, they're on the same team. Uh, we want the right. same result. We have a different reward system. You know, so the reward system is to not miss a single thing when you're in the bank, yet somehow continue to grow your business and, and do something nifty every quarter. On the regulatory side, it's never let anything bad happen. The, the, the growth factor isn't really, you know, isn't really factored in, right? They don't, they don't really care about your earnings or, or the success of your institution or the inconvenience of your clients, to be honest. And I'm not saying they're, they're callous. They simply, their job is to make sure this thing is incredibly safe. And pre-crisis, I would have said my job uh, as head of technology was probably, you know, 60% innovation, 40% execution. And I would say post-crisis, because I kept the same job through the crisis, I didn't retire until a couple of years past the crisis, um, that inverted, if not more. You know, my job became probably 70% um, compliance, process, documentation, right. certainty. Um, and that was to meet that ever-rising bar. And, and then the bar also came with, you know, these huge financial penalties when you missed it, as well as, as reputational risk. I mean, the reputational risk is probably even greater than the financial penalties. Even though the financial penalties can be tens of millions, the, the, the reputational risk is very, very high. So now, in terms of are they trying to slow down uh, or are they more reticent about innovation? I actually don't think so. I, I attended a meeting right before COVID hit, uh, sponsored by the New York Fed, and they had people, bankers from all over the world in the payments world come together at the New York Fed, and they invited all the what they considered to be the primary players in payments to that to that conference. And they were definitely pushing on artificial intelligence as a way of scanning payments going forward and monitoring. They wanted each country to stand forward with a primary regulator and a primary bank who was who was leading in the thought process. And some of them, like the Canadians uh, and the Singaporeans, are well ahead of the United States. And the United States mm -hmm. will learn from that and follow. The, the, it's no longer it's no longer that geographically separate. These guys do talk. They communicate. They realize that the crisis crises can be global and contagion. And I think COVID proved that as well. Um, Turning around the economy, you know, it was was a global effort by by the central banks. So these guys are much more collegial than they were, and they do indeed have leaders in the pack. And I would look to people like the Canadians and like the Singaporeans. Uh, the Singaporeans are actively trying to put artificial intelligence on top of payment monitoring as a way of checking whether or not the banks are doing it well. So if a bank is doing it 100% manually and they get caught out with an AI device run by the Singaporean, run by Moz. Um, that's not going to be comfortable for them. So they're going to have to keep the banks will have to keep pace uh, with the regulators in that case. In our case, we simply have to demonstrate over a period of time, you run a nice size parallel and, and you, you show that you can have fewer false positives and catch more bad guys and you can win. And, and, and that actually has been done with Quantiverse a number of times and a number of banks. As that story moves around the banking world, as one regulator talks to another regulator and they have conferences and stuff, you, you'll see the tide will go the other way. The title will be, why aren't you doing this as opposed right. to, uh, are you sure you want to do that?
Uh, that that makes sense. Let's go back to your career journey. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but oh, it sounds like given your background as you progressed through the company, you sort of fell into AML, meaning that it wasn't a primary focus. And I could say the same thing for, for myself. You know, 30 years ago, AML wasn't a thing, right? Uh, so um, over time, you got involved in it. What kept you besides your role and responsibility at the bank, what kept you engaged with that? I mean, what we talk, when we talk to a lot of your peers and colleagues in AML, they say, you know, what we do matters. What we do can actually help save lives and that sort of thing, uh, which is not to say it's not important to do credits and loans and all those sorts of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, the AML space is, so you got into the space, you've done quite a bit throughout your career in, in AML and obviously other places as well. But if you're if you're talking to somebody who's looking at this as a potential career path, how would you encourage him or her? What would you say are, from your perspective, have been the benefits of being part of that? I think I think there's two big grand social benefits, and I, I really mean that sincerely. Um, I do think there's two great benefits to society. One is people talk a lot about the high cost of international payments. You know, that's a lot of chatter. It's chatter in Congress. They talk about legislating it. And the truth is there's an inbuilt high cost of, of payments in general and indeed international payments because you get into drug trafficking and money laundering and human trafficking. You know, so these are the core elements. I mean, terrorism as well. I mean, there, there's core elements that drive these underlying, you know, that's the people who wind up on the OPEC list, right? So right. Uh, so, so that, that cadre and that high cost of international payments or payments in general is driven by the banks being required to do an incredible amount of KYC. The, the know your customer process is astronomically beyond what it was back in the day when you could show up with a check and open an account and walk away the next day. And for a large corporate, it can take 60 days. And for a medium size, it can take 30 just to start getting your banking relationship going because your bank is now required to understand you in a more intimate way. Who are you? Where'd your money come from? And what do you do on a daily basis? And am I going to monitor that you're doing kind of what you say you're going to do? So, so that process of know your customer and, and, and the Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering has created an overhead that has contributed to the high cost of international payments. It's driven the cost of some retail payments into very uns, unsavory areas. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on any companies, but you all know the right. wire companies that operate out of, you know, uh, bodegas. And you want to send a couple of bucks from... Mexico, where you're a, a farm worker to, or California, where you're a farm worker to Mexico, and you wind up paying nine, ten percent of the payment to the payment processor. That's what happens when you get pushed out of the banking community. So I think that I think there's a real social angle to doing what we do well, because then you can extend and get, you know, payments down to a lower unit rate to help people. So that's only one percent to make international payment as, as opposed to, as opposed to ten. But the greater social benefits, the underlying, you know, the distaste I have for the types of things that happens with this, some of the money that does get through the system. If you can choke off the cash, you know, I, I jump to human trafficking only because I think it's something everybody easily identifies with. Um, if you can't move the money, you can start choking off some of this. And it's just an evil, horrible thing. And there, I always call all these people collectively bad guys. doesn't matter rather in human trafficking, drug, terrorist, you're just a bad guy. It behooves everybody in our industry to share knowledge and to knock down the bad guys. And when I retired, I thought I just want to spend more time focusing on trying to get the bad guys out of the system and make the system work better. But it's it's good. It's to get away from the bad guys and then to make things cheaper for the good guys. 
as always, the shoplifter is the one who drives up the cost of goods in a store. And, and I, I actually draw that analogy here. It's these bad guys that are driving up the cost of payments and therefore hurting, you know, particularly lower income people materially. You, you know, you used a good example. One of the issues that we, uh, several of us from RightSource are working on with other um, advocacy groups is de-risking. And the, you know, the situation where banks, um, it's not just banks, but for the most part, international institutions that want to assist, let's say customers in Minnesota to send monies to Somalia, you know, whatever it might be, or conflict, other conflict zones. And because regulatory expectations sort of shift, they make the decision, we can't manage this. And so that what, what, then happens is what you described. They, you know, they go to MSBs, they go other places. So I think there's a clear uh, rooting interest, if you will, in trying to figure that out because that has a negative impact on world Absolutely. economies, obviously. So I think that's that's an area where those of us in the AML community can be part of, which which is another which you've alluded to, which is another reason to be part of this. Um, let me go back to my example of talking. You know, we have over. 3,000 employees now here at AML RightSource all around the globe. And that's very exciting. We have, you know, analysts, advisors, lawyers, you name it. Um, and some have come and, you know, came through different different paths, of course. And so when I was doing this, when I first started, you were a lawyer or a compliance officer and you gravitated to this, or it was just given to you at a bank because they needed somebody in the U.S. to be the bank secrecy officer. It wasn't an area you were focused on. But, but, but as you say, and as your career points out, technology is also a big part of this because of the use of uh, AI and, and certainly reviewing big data, that sort of thing. So if I'm sitting with Ken Harvey and I'm asking, um, you know, I'm going to make a decision. I have an undergraduate degree in whatever. Uh, I'm here as an analyst, but I want to improve my career and I want to stay in AML, financial crime prevention, sanctions, you know, the whole broad area, what different roads can I possibly take? Because some of it's based on, on your skill set. I'm a lawyer because I can't do math, right? So, so being an engineer like you, that never would have happened. But if you're talking to somebody who has a degree or is thinking of going to college and deciding what to focus on, and they want to do this, what, what sort of avenues uh, are open for them that you would recommend? I think it's kind of a cool field that way because I don't think anyone gets a degree in it, right? The last time I checked, there isn't a uni university out there that has a bachelor's in anti-money laundering. Uh, so you, you tend to take from different types of sciences. So how does your mind work, right? So uh, this, I don't know if you're, if you're aware of this, but people who speak more than one language or people who are musically inclined tend to be highly productive programmers. Mm -hmm. So their mind has this capability to, to think, let's say in my case in English, but have it come out on a guitar. I don't possess that skill, but some people have that skill. Right. Musicians actually train extremely well to be programmers because they're thinking in English, but it's coming out of their fingers in Java. And that mental flip of, of doing that is actually quite the power. So I think the power here is a lot about analytics. I don't want to call them quants because that sounds way too mathematical. The number of vectors right. you have to consider when you're hunting bad guys is going to... The word artificial intelligence is actually quite artificial. There is no real artificial intelligence. There is no machine in the world that is teaching itself and reinstalling its own programs to grow to a different type of machine. There is no HAL for anybody who remembers, you know, <laughs> the space odyssey. I do. Um, that, that hasn't happened, right? 
Although they can detect things out of huge batches of data and all they can do is offer you that up that detection. And then you still have to try to figure out with all the vectors that exist in the human mind, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Can that link to a trend? And then you ask the machine again, another question, well, what about this? And, and I, this is a true story. I, I, I ran a big analytics group um, for an evolving tech company that was trying to figure out whether you'd be a good loan or a bad loan, right? Are, are you the type of person with default? And they did all sorts of things. They checked eye color, you know, it, are your parents deadbeats? I'll give you an interesting factoid. If your parents are deadbeats, you won't be. That's an interesting mathematic equation. You would think if you were raised by deadbeats that you would then therefore not, be, not, not quite be as diligent about making your loan payments. But actually the reverse is true. As a child, you probably observed, oh, that doesn't look too good. And you become quite a responsible uh, borrower. So I, I just think the ability to, to, to think like that and, and, and apply that to how it works in our industry is extremely unique. A machine itself is not going to replace it and a university doesn't train it. So if you've got the kind of mind who likes a puzzle, uh, I think it's I think it's yeah. a great track. And I think compliance, just because of raw volume, raw volume of bad guys, raw volume of payments, and evolving forms of, of, of payment. And I don't want to go deeply into cryptocurrencies, and I'm not going to tell you it's going right. to replace fiat currencies tomorrow. It certainly is not. But as these things evolve, and whether it's a token or a frequent flyer mile or a Visa MasterCard transaction, the, the number of transactions we have that are now initiated and satisfied at arm's length, meaning you don't see the customer, they don't come into your branch, you don't get to look at their driver's license. It's just, it's blowing out the doors. And, and therefore the ability to think and model so that we can keep servicing the good guys, cutting out the bad guys, is just exponential. And the human mind is the best thing that, the best factor out there to create models as it is with underwriting and as underwriting loans. The best underwriting systems in the world that they call AI systems are programmed by people who have been good lenders or good collectors, because they know what a bad loan looks like. You know, so they put that data in and, and then the machine actually then can keep modeling and say, now did I make better decisions because of it or not? I mean, they can give you a real-time feedback, you know, a couple payments on as to whether or not you made a good, a, a good move. Um, so working with the machine is what really makes artificial intelligence. So if you've got that kind of vectory puzzle solving mind, or if you're a veteran who's been working these cases, after a while, you've got a feeling. You got a feeling sure. for that really, that's a, that's, a, that's a positive positive, not a false positive. But then how did you know that? And, and could you catch more that way if you contributed that knowledge to the base? Let me get you out of here on this, Ken. And thanks so much. Really looking forward to having you uh, work with us on the advisory board. Five years from now, what's the big thing in the financial crime prevention community that we may see? Now, obviously, you reference crypto. Um, and we both know, and you've been involved in some, that there's a whole host of fintech entities that have AML programs, but from a global standpoint, next five years, what do you think, maybe phrase it this way, what do you think the biggest challenge that we're going to have to either overcome or defeat will be in the next five years for, for our community? It's interesting you asked me that question today, and, I, and I'm not sure this will probably air in a few days, but yesterday, Libra, what was known as Libra folded, um, and when you think about it, that's fascinating because Libra as, as, as a cryptocurrency had a really good design. The underlying value was based on a basket of currencies. So it wasn't like a Bitcoin. You know, it wasn't an asset class that you were bidding up or bidding down. You know, I would argue Bitcoin is not a form of payment because if the payment jumps up and down 5% a day, it's not a payment, you know. So right. payments are stable and, and therefore some form of a stable coin makes sense. And to have a stable coin based on a basket was a really good design. Um, and secondarily, the day they were announced, a dozen serious sized companies came out and said, the moment that coin hits the street, I'll take the Libra. 
So you had supply, demand, and a decent design. Why did they fold? And, and, and it's, it's in all the newspapers now. It's no secret. They folded because yeah. they totally bypassed our industry. They totally bypassed one of the biggest friction points in processing payments, which is how do you make sure the payment stream is clean? How do you identify and become digitally intimate with your customer? I don't want to use that word too lightly, but you understand your customer, what they're paying for, where the money's going. Uh, and banks have absorbed globally, not unique to the United States. Banks have absorbed this responsibility on behalf of the world's police forces. Our biggest challenge is going to be this volume of some type of tokenization or digital heading our way that's going to bring even more volume than we've been having to date and how those people will invest more money and more time trying to solve this because they don't want to die like Libra. And again, look at the size of Libra, look at the people behind it, look at the design and look at the people who said they would take it. They had the debits and the credits. They didn't have our process. Trying to figure out how our process, not just for them, but for everybody, for the banks, that our process can become so much more cost-effective and sub-second, that's going to be the ticket to, to enabling these flows. And then you're going to have a real unleashing of what, what real digital payments could be like. So I think, I, I hate to sound trendy, you know, but I think digital payments are coming. They just haven't solved our nut. And you just saw the biggest player in the business fold their house because they couldn't solve our nut. Ken, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, it's clear the passion in your voice that you're still very much engaged in this broad-based community. So we're really looking forward to your insight going forward. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. 